welcome to Gesundheit with Jacobus, Health Talk Radio, integrating allopathic and all-natural medicine one show at a time. Here is your host, Jacobus Hollowine. That's correct. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. It is February 2nd. This is Gesundheit with Jacobus, a program where I talk every Saturday morning about health, healing, and healthy lifestyles. I invite experts to come on the program and share their research, their type of work, the line of work, I should say, maybe a book they've written, articles, anything that has to do with health, healing, and healthy lifestyles. Just an absolute pleasure to be with you. I want to let you know that as we dig into topics, we are not here to diagnose, treat, or cure. It's all about information, education, hopefully some entertainment, I am excited to have my longtime friend, Dr. John Neustadt, back on the program with me. Let me tell you a little bit about him. He was a physician right over here in Bozeman. Uh, He's an old friend and colleague who got his start right here in Bozeman. He founded and was medical director of Montana Integrative Medicine. He was voted best doctor in a best of Bozeman survey and he was recognized by Elsevier, the world's largest medical publisher, as one of the top 10 cited authors in the world for one of his publications. Dr. Neustadt published over 100 research reviews and three books. He is the founder of the dietary supplement company Nutritional Biochemistry Inc., abbreviated as NBI. NBI was started right here on Bozeman in 2006. Since that time, Dr. Neustadt's unique formulas have helped people in more than 15 countries. Today, I'll be talking to him about sleep. I want to let you know that his website, nbihealth.com, nbihealth.com. And if you like to get a hold of him by phone after the program, dial 800 624 one six one eight hundred six two four one four one six. John, it's an absolute pleasure to have you back in Bozeman. Ah, so great! I wish I were there live with you in the studio. I I remember it well, and <laughs> I have loved being on your show in the past. Thank you. What a topic! I, the more I read about it, this is such a complex topic that we take for granted, and 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 researchers and and people like yourself being very interested in it. I'm sure you find more and more and more information about possible reasons why people cannot sleep. Well, the research is, is ongoing, which is great. There's still a lot uh, to be discovered. And I, I came at this from really my own issues. Oh. I, I, I had terrible, terrible insomnia. Huh. And so as a clinician, as a researcher, as a formulator, you know, I looked at the different uh, stuff out there and what we were doing with patients. And I dove into the research because I couldn't really find really anything to help myself that was working consistently and to help people who I consult with and who I work with who, who also have the same problem because sleep issues uh, are so prevalent. There's millions and millions, tens of millions of people who have sleep problems. Oh, absolutely. There's an interesting dynamic that as we get older, you know, there's an increase in, in sleep problems. Up to 80 million people in the U.S. have some sort of sleep issue going on uh, every week. Uh, insomnia is the most, most common. 
And what's interesting about that is there is no diagnostic test for insomnia. You just know if you're not sleeping well, whether you have difficulty falling asleep or you're waking up multiple times during the night, having difficulty falling back asleep, you feel unrefreshed in the morning, and not getting good sleep is not only does it affect you immediately, you have difficulty processing information, people can be more irritable, they have uh, more difficulty interacting with other people uh, at work. You just just coping through through the day yes. becomes difficult. As anybody who's ever not had a great night's sleep can easily attest. Yes, absolutely. But if it goes on and is more chronic, it, it really is deadly. It increases the risk for diabetes, depression, obesity, heart attack, stroke, death. Uh, and that that's only a partial list. Right. So, mm-hmm. un, you know, really trying to get a handle on this is is crucial, not only for our, our quality of life, because it just is doesn't feel good to be tired a lot. Yes. But also for, for our health. It's, it's absolutely uh, crucial. Well, I think a big part, as you say, I know it myself, if I just don't sleep well, uh, number one, it's very difficult to stay focused and concentrated on what you're doing in relationship with other people, um, but also it just affects your mood. You just get a little irritable, and uh, like you say, you can start eating food or trying to stay awake, which often leads to diabetes because you grab the food that gives you quick energy, which is usually some kind of carbohydrates. Uh, So, yeah, absolutely, getting that sleep back under control is uh, essential. It's part of living, in my opinion. Well, and in fact, it it can be dangerous if you're going through your daily life uh fatigued there are you know major major accidents uh, like the india's bhopal explosion if you remember that years ago the exxon valdez accident yes uh, chernobyl in, in russia the nuclear disaster all of those had fatigue as a major component with the oh. with the workers working double shifts and long hours and and that that was cited uh, fatigue as a major uh, issue, and oh. in fact, you know, being tired and insomnia is, you know, also correlates with virtually all you know, psychiatric disorders, and it dis- diminishes our quality of life as much as uh, congestive heart failure and major depressive disorder. You know, it's a common. It's it's commonly involved in in car accidents. Hmm. Yes. Now, you as a doctor. What I often see with doctors who do an internship, they have them stay awake for like 72 hours. They they keep them on a long shift. Why is that done? I understand probably part of the reasoning, but is that really a good idea? I think it's a terrible idea. Yeah. As, as people get more fatigued, it is easier, of course, to make mistakes. And it, it has been cited as a cause of medical mistakes with with patients. I think it's a terrible idea. And there's been a movement over the last 10 or 12 years to decrease the durate, the length of those rotations so mm-hmm. that that uh, healthcare workers, physicians and nurses can can operate more effectively with less risk to the patients by not working such long shifts, by not staying awake uh, so many hours. I mean, I know Colleagues of mine who have done have been in their 
residencies and, and, and literally would, would go into the, the bathroom to just put their, uh, their chin on their, on their, you know, down a little bit on their, on their hand and rest their, their arm on their, on their leg and prop themselves up and sleep that way to just yeah. to get some sleep until somebody, the nurses know where they are, knock on the door and wake them up because a patient needs them. Wow. That's how desperate it can yeah, get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I cannot imagine that would be a positive thing, but that is one of the things you see on a regular basis. Doctors just, or especially medical students when they start their internship, uh, running these crazy schedules. It almost seems like hazing to me. <laughs> I don't know. There is a lot of that in, in, in medicine. Um, I remember uh, when I was in school, my first year in one of my classes, I mean, they, they give us such a, such a heavy load, but in my physiology class, the professor is an 8 a.m. class, and he, you know, we were a little tired, but people had been studying. He was asking questions. We knew the answers. Hands were going up, and he stopped the lecture, and he just started screaming at us because we weren't answering fast enough. Oh, wow. So there's a, there's a certain logic, although I think a little twisted, behind it. Yeah. Meaning that you're dealing with people's lives. You know, we're dealing with people's lives and people are turning to us for answers and expertise and, and to help them. And decisions that we make literally can cause somebody their life sometimes Which and also true. save their life. Yes, yes, yes. And, and so if you don't really want to be there, if you're not passionate about it, if you're not willing to get through the tough times that they, they, they put us through, then frankly, you should go find another profession. So there's a certain logic to it, but at the same time, when it comes to the residencies and those long hours and the impact that it can have in the clinics, in the hospital setting, uh, there's a lot of research and there's a movement to to reduce those long hours and and allow uh, physicians to get more rest during their shifts because it's just not in the patient's interest to, to have that dynamic. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Newstead, can we maybe let people know the complexity of some of these sleep disorders? What are some of the sleep disorders? I mean, people say, okay, insomnia, and then you start thinking, and I looked at a list that had about 30 of them on there, and I go, I had no idea, but it makes total sense. Would you help us to go through a list of sleep disorders? Sure. There are a lot of them, and and. The most common are insomnia, which, which I mentioned already, uh, sleep apnea, and restless leg syndrome. Those are the ones that people are going to you know, hear about most. Yes. Then there, there are uh, what are called treatment emergent insomnia or sleep disorders. Uh, it can cause disruption in different phases of sleep. So there's a it's called an architecture to sleep, a sleep architecture. Yes. And there are different stages of sleep, and certain medications can create sleep pattern disruptions in different stages. And so that would be sort of a treatment emergent or uh, a drug-induced sleep disorder. Yes. With sleep apnea, that's divided into two categories. Okay. There is central sleep apnea, and there's peripheral sleep apnea. So central sleep apnea refers to the central nervous system. So there's something maybe going on in the brain. So sleep apnea is where somebody stops breathing temporarily. So when we're 
screening somebody to try and find out what's going on. Uh, it can oftentimes be important to ask not just the patient, but, but their partner, you know, the oh. person who's sleeping with them every night. Yes. Do, you, do you wake up gasping for air or do they stop, uh, stop breathing? Do you ever notice that they stop breathing temporarily during sleep? And those can be the indicators of sleep apnea. Yeah. And then the question always should be, hopefully, a good clinician is always asking the question, you know, what's the underlying cause? Right. And we try and find out what's going on. So with peripheral sleep apnea, it's actually quite straightforward. A lot of the time, it involves people being overweight. Okay. And, okay. Okay. and just when they sleep and the position of their sleep, their tongue relaxes and their throat closes up a little bit and it can cause a blockage in the airway. And then their body naturally reacts to that because it doesn't want to die. And sure, they yeah, gasp yeah. for air. So losing weight in those situations can, can totally cure it if somebody's willing to put in the work to, to do that. Right. Uh, central sleep apnea is a, is a little more complicated. Uh, the mechanisms for that are not totally well understood. And in fact, as, as you start going down and digging into the research of the neurochemistry and the hormones involved with sleep and sleep disorders, and frankly, with a, with a lot of diseases, there, there's still a lot that we don't know. Absolutely. Yes. Especially with uh, emotional, possible emotional causes playing a role in this. So that would be, uh, that would be definitely something that, uh, that has to be researched. Wow. So the central sleep apnea and peripheral sleep apnea, I saw one that says called obstructive sleep apnea. Is that kind of the central sleep apnea then? No, that'd be the peripheral. That'd be not not in the central nervous system. Something is obstructing okay. the the airway, like I like I mentioned. Yes, it's called also obstructive sleep apnea. All right. Good morning, caller. Thank you for joining the program. You're live with Dr. John Newstead. What's your name? How can we help you? Hey, good morning, Jacobus. This is Steve O. Hey, Steve O. Uh, good morning. Hey, my question is concerning congestive heart failure, a cause and effect thing. When you know is. The lack of sleep, the contributing factor for congestive heart failure, or does congestive heart failure cause some of these symptoms of lack of sleep? And if so, could the doctor please explain the connection there and uh, if anything can be done to improve the situation with congestive heart failure regarding, you know, the lack of sleep? Oh. Excellent question. I think you might be referring to my statement earlier that sleep deprivation can cause a decrease in the quality of life similar to congestive heart failure. I wasn't making a connection between sleep disruption and causing congestive heart failure. But with congestive heart failure, uh, there's, there's definitely a decrease in the quality of life, decrease to walk long distances, walk upstairs, greater amount of fatigue, you get winded easier, yeah. and that has decreased in the, mag- the quality of life with congestive heart failure is similar to what can be created by sleep deprivation. And so that's the connection I was, I, I was making. In terms of does uh, insomnia or other sleep disorders cause congestive heart failure, my short answer is, is I don't know. Hmm. The The Longer answer to you would be if you have congestive heart failure, you know, more importantly, what can, what can you do about it? Making sure you get good sleep can help because it helps 
everything in our body just function better. So that that that's important. Uh, but also, there's good research. If you go, they're they're great uh, naturopathic doctors and integrative doctors uh, in Bozeman and the Gallatin Valley. If if you're in that area, who I'm sure could help you. Uh, there's good research with congestive heart failure with some botanicals um, like uh, hawthorn yeah. uh, berry. Yeah. Uh, clinical trials on that. Yeah. I've written on that in the past. So there are there are things that you may be able to do in conjunction with any conventional medical approach that that you're doing that could potentially help you. All right. Well, that's great answer. We are hitting the first break of today's Gesundheit with Jacobus. Dr. John Neustadt, my guest on the program. As we come back, we're going to continue talking about sleep. We'll discuss sleep architecture, hyperarousal hypothesis, and also medications plus a new product that Dr. Neustadt has developed. So stay tuned for that. We're going to be right back. Uh, Just to let people know, there are so many different uh, medical conditions that are considered sleep disorders. And we, we mentioned the sleep apnea. You mentioned insomnia by itself, restless leg syndrome, um, are there some other ones that people say, oh my goodness, I wasn't aware of it, or I've forgotten about that one. Could you share some more disorders with us, please? Absolutely. So I think that it would be helpful to categorize them oh, um, in order to sort of understand where the, where they fit within yeah. the sleep cycle. So there are disorders that, that make it hard for us to fall asleep, and then there are disorders that make it difficult for us to Stay asleep yeah. or get into a deep restorative sleep. Okay. And then there is a disorder uh, or disorders that actually make us sleep too much. Oh. And, oh. and so understanding and starting to put them in different categories uh, is a way that I think is very helpful for then being able to try and look and see what might be some of the underlying causes, what's, what's going on. Okay. So insomnia can, like you mentioned, it can be difficulty falling asleep and it can also be difficulty staying asleep. Yeah. Uh, then there's a uh, bruxism that happens with people. If they're grinding their teeth too much, uh, typically they'll do that in their sleep. That can wake them up. It can keep them from getting into a, a deep restorative stage of, of sleep. Okay. Uh, then, th- then there's narcolepsy, yeah. which uh, people sleep too much. Okay. Called a hypersomnolent condition, meaning they sleep they sleep too much. Okay, and I think that you also, you know, people come into your store, and I think they there are other other ones that they talk to you about uh, as well. Are there any common ones that you hear that? I well, jet lag, jet lag is a big one. People who travel, and we have a lot of people moving into Bozeman, and they come from different areas of the country, and they complain about the jet lag just affecting them. And then I would say. uh, most of the people, Dr. Neustadt, are not telling us that they have night terrors, for example, or that they have hallucinations or anxiety. They just say, I can't sleep. And then I, when I ask them, do you not fall asleep or do you not stay asleep? They'll answer that one. Then I ask them if they cannot fall asleep, if it is because their mind being overactive or if they're relaxed in the mind. And the same when they wake up in the middle of the night, two thirty-three in the morning, 
is their mind overactive or is their mind relaxed? In my opinion, there are different approaches. Obviously, the mind can be very powerful. And if the mind doesn't slow down because of, and we can explain that to the people, how the pineal gland works with the with the serotonin production, if we don't have enough serotonin at night to, to induce the melatonin hormone, then I think uh, we, we have an issue where people but people's brains are just working too much, so we have to help them to calm the mind. Yeah, yeah. I, I just, uh, I'm smiling. I can't see it because we're not in the studio together, but uh, I love that your store and you, uh, how well educated you are, uh, and your staff that I've interacted with over the years. Well, just What a resource for the community to be able to go in and have those conversations and get the help uh, there over the counter uh, with, nutrition that can be so powerful as as you know so you've just created you know providing such an amazing (laughs) service to to the community i would jet jet lag is an interesting one because fitbit the wearable device company yeah yeah yeah. right they 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 did they took the largest data set in the history six billion points of data from their users that they collected on on sleep and they tried to determine, you know, what are the biggest causes of why people aren't sleeping well. The number one cause that they determined, they called social jet lag. And what happens is people are going to bed at about the same time during the week because they're working or in school. Yeah, yeah. And Friday and Saturday night come and they're staying out late. Okay. Staying up late. And then come Sunday and Monday, they're tossing and turning and having a hard time just sleeping because over the weekend, what they've simulated is to their body, it's as if they've flown to another time zone. They shifted their body clock by staying up later, and it creates what they called, what Fitbit called social jet lag. And in fact, one of the greatest things that people can do to help naturally improve their sleep isn't a pill at all. Huh. It's going to bed at about the same time every night. Oh. And just training your body that that's, that's the time to sleep. Huh. With, uh, with technology, with you know, 24-hour electricity, light bulbs you know, that we could turn on with a flick of a switch. You know, our, our bodies didn't evolve that way. Yes. We evolved that when it got dark, you know, it was time to settle in for the night. And the melatonin that you mentioned starts to go up at about 10 o'clock at night and peaks at about 2 in the morning. There's a, there's a daily rhythm of our melatonin secretion in the body that, that mimics the, the daily cycle of, of night and day called the circadian rhythm huh. and helps people calm down and get ready uh, for sleep. And I know we're going to talk about melatonin later in the program, so I'm going to just you know put a sort of just put a note there that, that we'll, we'll circle back to that because a lot of people take melatonin and there's, there's lots to discuss on that. But yes. when it comes to, to jet lag, you know, trying when you, when you arrive at your new destination, one of the best things people can do is not take a nap, oh. is, is, is train their body, get, get on the local time as quickly as possible, stay up if you can and go to bed at a, a normal, you know, regular decent hour for the night. So your body clock can adjust as quickly as possible to the new time. Huh. 
And yes, there are sleeping aids that can be taken, and and that's you know I created one of them. But yeah. but you know, getting your body on the local time clock by staying awake is is one of the best things that 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 people can do. Okay, that's a good point. That's a good point. And, and you you also mentioned the people being stressed and 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 the anxiety and it, the racing mind. It's so important. And and uh, in my clinic, when I would work with patients and, and, and ask them about their sleep, I, I asked two, you know, general introductory questions about sleep. One is, how many hours on average are they getting a night? Because the research is clear. We need to get eight hours of sleep at night. 20% of the population is getting less than seven a night. And are they having any difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep? I see. So if it's difficulty falling asleep, it's called sleep phase delay. They're, they're delayed in their, how long it takes them to fall asleep. The average amount. Some people, when you talk to them, they have a, an expectation that they should just close their eyes and be asleep. I see, but, yes. but really, But really, the average is about 20 to 30 minutes that takes people to fall asleep. So, you know, people can be laying there and they're not really falling asleep and they start to get anxious that they're not falling asleep. But in reality, you know, they're still within that, what what we would call, quote unquote, normal window of time that it takes to fall asleep. Okay. Technically, it's called sleep latency, the, the time it takes to fall asleep. Okay. And then once they're asleep, do they wake up in the middle of the night? It's called sleep phase advance. Are they waking up? Sleep, sleep stage advanced? I, sleep phase. Sleep phase. Advanced. Okay. Advanced. Okay. And there, there are different reasons for for both of those, but they also the reasons also can overlap. And anxiety, as you mentioned, is is one of them. There's a hypothesis called the hyperarousal hypothesis. Okay. Which, when people are under chronic stress, and unfortunately in this day and age, a lot of people are under a lot of stress, that your body secretes cortisol and epinephrine. And basically, you get wired. Yes. And so when you go to fall asleep at night and you're in bed, that's when people just can't turn it off. And they're staring at the ceiling and they can't fall asleep. That's the hyperarousal hypothesis. Yes. And one way to deal with that is, of course, to try and identify and decrease the stress that's going on. Yes. Give your adrenal glands a a rest and, and recalibrate. A lot of times it takes for people simplifying. They tend to be, they can be overextended in their commitments or really identifying what's most important to them and, mm. and cutting off, cutting out and stop doing those things that really aren't serving their, their, their core goals. Yes. Uh, you know, people stop doing lists is as important as their to-do list, I in see. my opinion. I see. Yes. I, I think that is a huge uh, issue. I looked at some of the research on the hyperarousal hypothesis. Uh, there is a lot going on about it. There's a lot of articles on the web about it. Uh, kind of complex, but totally what you're saying, uh, it, it's a big issue. And I think almost the biggest issue when I talk with people that they cannot turn the mind off. So physically, they literally are exhausted at the end of the night, and it is almost the brain says, okay, go ahead and relax right now, and they relax, but then (laughs) they fall asleep on the couch in front of the TV or when they're reading a book, and then they do wake up in the middle of the night because the brain is working again and uh, wakes them up. 
Yes. I like to call it wired but tired. Wired so but tired. Excellent. Yes. Right. So they're, they're, they're tired, but they just can't turn it off. They can't, they can't seem to calm down and go to sleep. And they're wonderful techniques and things people can do. Breathing exercises, meditation, physical exercise. Uh, decreasing, like I said, stress by stop doing what's not really serving them. Yeah. You know, wonderful things that, that people can do. Yeah. Also, one thing that can be helpful is to just write, if you've got a, a lot going on and you're, you're feeling overwhelmed, to get it out of your head before you go to bed, to take a piece of paper or a journal and write down what you have to do the next day. Just oh. get it out. Oh, I that see. That way people can feel more control, that they're more mm. in control. A lot of times when people are stressed, it's part of it is feeling out of control. Yeah. They've okay. got so much going on. Mm. So that's one way to just get it out and, and hopefully help the mind relax and feel more comfortable with, with what's going on because it's, you know, like they know what they're doing. They have to do the next day and now they can just get a good night's sleep. Yeah. Excellent. Dr. John Neustadt is my guest today on Gesundheit with Jacobus. The topic is sleep, sleep disorders. What are the possible, the reasons, the causes, what are the possible solutions for that? A lot to talk about because there are so many different issues that go with sleep and how a sleep affects the rest of the day. If you have any questions uh, afterwards that you want to talk to Dr. John Neustadt about, Feel free to call him. He says 800-624-1416. 800-624-1416. His website is N for Nancy, NBI Health, Nutritional Biochemistry Inc. Health. Dot com nbihealth.com check the website you learn more about it we have a caller patiently waiting good morning caller thanks for joining the show what's your name how can we help you please this is judy and i was just uh, going to ask dr john there yeah he thinks about the emf electromagnetic frequencies you bet this g5 that's coming in and i'll listen thanks you judy bye-bye Thank you. Uh, that's an interesting question, and I think that you know there are people who are more sensitive to electromagnetic radiation and those frequencies than others. And I have seen people who, uh, you know, get sleep disturbances. Uh, I think most people tend not to be. I don't with the with the five G uh, coming on. Uh, I, I think that it's not. Uh, well, I know it's not it's not an issue that I've delved into the research specifically with the 5G. With technology itself, you know, it doesn't whether it's 4G, 5G, uh, that's how it's being delivered. That the, the frequency of the of the the internet speed, the download speed, and the upload speed. But technology itself can be, and those electromagnetic waves from technology yeah. can be a, a, a huge issue with respect to using phones uh, and tablet computers in bed at night. There was yeah. a interesting, fascinating clinical trial that was done. Oh, really? Where they, where they had, yes, they had people read uh, electronic books in e-reader at night in bed, uh, or before bed, I should say, at night before bed. And they had another group, so control group, read print books. Okay. They're just paper, old-fashioned paper books. And what they found in the study was that those people who read on an electronic device, a tablet, for example, yeah. had a harder time falling asleep. Okay. 
And it took them hours, hours, not minutes, hours longer in the morning to wake up, to feel totally awake than those people who read a print book. And what was happening is the electromagnetic radiation from those screens goes into your eyes and it actually depletes melatonin. It depletes the melatonin in the brain. Wow. And Judy, I would say that is the strongest research for the link between technology and sleep problems. And one of the things, as I mentioned before, that people can do that's so important is to go to bed at about the same time every night to train their body. But the other thing is don't use technology before bed. Turn off those screens about an hour before bed. Don't look at them in the middle of the night if you happen to wake up because it's just going to wake you up even more. Yes. And if you're using them in bed before sleep, it can they can easily impact your sleep, keep you from falling asleep, and induce, in effect, you're inducing your own sleep disorder. Yeah. It's it's so interesting, Dr. Neustadt, that we have developed as human beings over such a long period of time. So many things have happened to us, but one thing that has only been around for the last 120 years is electronics or electronica. And even though we couldn't live without it right now, it is... We, our body has had to get used to that so quickly that we are still learning the effects. And this is a typical effect with the introduction of the 5G uh, phones and uh, connections that there is obviously is our body, is our mind. We are all energetic beings. How does that affect the energy in our body? And just like you say, some people will be more sensitive than others. But it is there are a lot of people affected, and because it is so so much a part of our daily living today to have these phones, to have these electronic gadgets, people don't want to look at that as a possible cause of the problems that they're facing. Well, and, and unfortunately, these gadgets become addictive. Yes, they you know the the, the tapping on the screens and the, the swiping, people impulsively looking at their phones, checking their emails. They get a ding, and they're trained. Uh, triggered to pick up their phone and look, even though it's not even an emergency, and they're getting what's happening as they're, as they're interacting with their phones, is they're getting these hits of dopamine, it's releasing yeah. neurochemicals in, in the brain that literally make it addictive. Yes. And people, are, hey, I'm not immune either. I found myself impulsively grabbing my phone uh, or people also use it as, as crutch in social situations where they're a little bored and they don't want to interact with, with others. And so they'll, they'll hide behind their, their technology. And I think it does people a real disservice because they're that, you know, of, of sitting in that discomfort and, and actually dealing with that human interaction in a positive way. In fact, I wrote a whole blog on, on the effects of technology on our relationships and sleep. Uh, on my website and did a Facebook live video on it. So people may find that that helpful. But in terms of the last century, as you mentioned, sleep has decreased 20% over the last century. Wow. And, uh, you know, I already mentioned that 20% of adults sleep, uh, you know, less than seven hours a night, less than about 6.5 hours per night. And it's precisely because of the technology that you mentioned, the oh, electricity right. and the, the impacts that it's having on our health. 
both positive and negative. There are a lot of positives from technology, but like all developments, you know, there are some negatives that people, if they're aware of, they can take the steps to try and avoid the, the negative impacts of the technology. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely right. So you mentioned 20% in the last century, we have decreased sleep and part of that could be the electricity. Now, how common are sleep issues, would you say? Yeah, they're, they're incredibly common. So uh, 50 to 70 million Americans, it's estimated, you know, chronically suffer from some disorder, of uh, some sleep disorder. Uh, 10 to 15% of the general population is considered uh, have insomnia, but in primary care patients, patients that we, we see in the doctor's offices, uh, near almost 70% of those patients are suffering from and struggling with insomnia. And so it's really important when you go in to see your healthcare provider, if you're going in for some complaint that's not sleep-related, a lot of times they may not even ask you about your sleep. I see. Yeah, and, that's a great point. But, but what you're experiencing, I mentioned all of these diseases like diabetes, heart disease, uh, yeah. stroke, all yeah. these different diseases that have insomnia and sleep disorders involved in them, that even if you think that, that what you're feeling isn't related to sleep, if you're having a difficulty sleeping, make sure you mention that because it may very well be related to what you're experiencing. Yeah, you know, that is actually a great point. Uh, we tend to forget it because it, beca- it comes so naturally. And we, when we continue our conversation, I know that many issues come up with people who just have tried almost everything and it just doesn't seem to work. So hopefully we can help them today, give them some answers, possibilities, solutions, things to think about. But we do that when we come back with Dr. Neustadt, so please stay tuned. We'll be right back. Dr. John Neustadt, absolute pleasure to have you back on the program. Thank you. Just your wisdom, your knowledge. It's uh, You've always been been a scientist, and but you're also very practical. You want to try things out in yourself and been one of your struggles. You fought insomnia. And so to explain to people what are some of these sleep disorders, because some people may say, I didn't know that was a specific sleep disorder. And I, I, found, I found the sleeping disorder list and the ICD-9 diagnostic code, the ICD-9 is the International Statistical Classification of Diseases and Related Health Problems. And when you look at how many there are, it's uh, I printed out five pages of sleep-related problems. So people who have these issues, they would go to the doctor and the doctor will say, give you a code because it is actually a qualified disorder that you can, I think that is what you use it for, to send it to the insurance company. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. Correct. So uh, there is a lot, and we we have discussed uh, some of them in the first hour. And one thing that you touched upon, and we don't want to go super-duper into it. People can look it up. It's called sleep architecture, and I would like to explain a little bit more about it. And, and then I would like to ask you if you can explain why some people have such a hard time sleeping. Could you explain a little bit more about sleep architecture, what that really means? Uh, absolutely. And, and one of the things that I'm passionate about, besides researching and delving into the, the research to discover the underlying causes of what's going on with people, 
as to and create solutions to help them is to get to the point in my own research and my own understanding where I can take the technical information, focus on what's most relevant to the patient or the person who's struggling with it so it doesn't get too technical and jargony, uh, but also understand all of that. And I've actually been asked at uh, multiple, invited to multiple medical conferences now based on my sleep research to present my findings and present the research at medical conferences. And when it comes to sleep, sleep architecture, that can get incredibly technical, but there are just a few things for people to understand that can be very enlightening uh, as to what might be, be going on. Okay. Uh, the first I mentioned before is that there are two big categories within sleep architecture. It's the time it takes you to fall asleep called sleep latency, and then the time that you are asleep, and that's called total sleep time. Okay. So there are normal values quote-unquote normal values for how long it takes people to sleep. As we age, anybody who's had kids and, you know, is getting older can, you know, we all know that how, how we sleep, how deep a kid can sleep. Anybody with children like myself and like you has had the experience where you're feeding a, 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 a toddler, an infant, and mid-bite, they nod off in their sleep, in their chair. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, their sleep architecture, what they need, is different than as we age and get into adolescence and go through puberty and adulthood. The normal value for how long it takes adults to fall asleep, um, young adults, is, you know, and I'd say teenagers, is typically 30 minutes, below 30 minutes. Okay. As we get older, that time can increase. So anything below 45 minutes for the, for elderly folks. And, and that architecture, as we move along as that, when we're asleep uh, can change as well, because once we're asleep, then there are different sleep stages. So stage one is the lightest stage of sleep. That's when it's easiest to get woke, woken up. Okay. It's in easily disrupted by noises. Okay. And from middle age onwards, as we get get older, more time is spent in stage one sleep with more awakenings. People tend to wake up more as they get older. So if that's a concern for for people uh, who are in their 40s and 50s and 60s and it starts happening, understand that, yes, it can impact sleep because stage one is not the restorative sleep that allows us to feel refreshed and energetic in the morning stage one is a very light stage of sleep and if you're spending more time in that stage then it means you may feel more fatigued and you're getting woken up more often and easier than you used to but there are things that that you can do to help you get into deeper sleep natural things that you can do to help you get get beyond that and get better sleep that i know we're going to talk about a little later in the show. You bet. One phenomenon, though, that we see with younger folks, uh, typically with uh, chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia, uh, and we haven't really talked about it, but pain is another reason why people have difficulty sleeping. Oh, but with, yes. with, with chronic fatigue, the typical picture of the patient with chronic fatigue syndrome is uh, typically it's a, a female in her 30s who's been under a lot of stress, chronic stress, and one of their 
reactions to stress is not to sort of allow themselves to rest and recover and but but to put the pedal to the metal and just push through and put their head down and just keep going 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 and so it's years typically of a lot of stress and then there is one exacerbating factor that may happen stressful event a move to a new a city, um, losing a job, a breakup of a relationship, a, a death, something that is the, I call it the straw that breaks the camel's back. It, right. Then you get multi-system dysfunction, and they tend to have a lot, very complicated things going on. But one of the things that they have is a sleep disruption. They tend to be lighter sleepers. They, they tend to stay in that stage one sleep, oh. and they're, they're getting woken up easier they're not getting into that deep restorative sleep so understanding that that it's important to go beyond stage one can help you identify that what are certain things that you might be able to do maybe you're not having a hard time falling asleep but you're having a hard time once you are asleep staying asleep or you're getting woken up uh easier okay so one of the things that you can do that can help people is white noise white noise is great you can get a white noise app on your phone or there are standalone uh, devices you can put by your bed, soothing sounds of of wind in trees or water, uh, that can help calm people down and and stay in a deeper sleep longer, uh, is what I found. And then there are always natural products that can be used as well, Uh, herbs, amino acids, vitamins that, that might help. Then beyond stage one, you start getting, you know, into deeper stages, so you get into stage two. Yeah, okay. And that stage two, it takes more stimulation to wake up. You're in a deeper sleep, but you're still not in that restorative sleep. That gets into stages three and four. Okay. And the stage three is is what's considered the restful component of sleep. Uh, It makes you feel refreshed in the morning. And so spending enough time in stage three is really important. In fact, when we look at EKGs or EEGs, I'm sorry, of uh, brainwave studies of people who have been asleep, that stage three sleep is characterized by slow waves. So the, this, the brain activity slows down. Okay. And then stage four is the highest arousal threshold. That's when people are, you know, you can shake them and they're not awake. Huh. You shake them, shake them, and they're, they're, they're not really awake. I see. Uh, and then you get into the REM sleep, that rapid eye movement sleep, that last stage. Um, stages one, two, three, and four, there's not dreaming happening. It's called the non-REM sleep. It's when then you get into the REM cycle, yes. rapid eye movement cycle. That's when dreaming is considered to be occurring. Okay. And that part of the REM sleep, though, tends to be preserved quite late in, night, in, in life. So as I mentioned before, as we get age, as we age, people may, may take them longer to fall asleep and they may spend more time in stage one with more frequent awakenings during the night. But once they drop into that REM sleep, that stage of sleep, even as we age, tends to be quite well preserved. Huh. So, Dr. Neustadt, if you hit the REM sleep and you say that is usually when we dream, but it happens in a later stage, obviously, Dreams, therefore, are usually not very long. Is that right? I heard once they only last seconds, but they seem to be the whole night. So, yeah, the the, the REM sleep is not a uh, a long cycle. So, uh, seventy five to eighty percent of sleep, total sleep time 
is in the non-REM, the non-dreaming part of sleep. Huh. 20 to 25% is in the REM stage, meaning dreaming. But you just don't have one of each stage during the night. It, it cycles. Okay. So you'll have oh. multiple multiple stages, uh, multiple stage one, multiple stage three, okay. multiple, sta- multiple REM cycles during a, a total night's sleep. You're cycling through them all. So stage one, for example, only lasts about one to seven minutes typically, and that's two to five percent of total sleep time. Huh. Uh, stage two ends up to being about 10 to 25 minutes on the initial cycle, but then as Sleep goes on during the night, and you, you, you cycle back into stage two again. Yeah, yeah. You know that that the duration, the length of stage two tends to increase. Oh, and that's about forty-five to fifty-five percent of the total sleep time. But that restorative, interesting that that restorative sleep that we get, that slow wave sleep, that stage three sleep that makes us feel refreshed in the morning. A lot of people probably assume that. We're in that, we have to be in that for a, a really long time during the night in order to feel refreshed. But that slow wave, refreshing stage three sleep uh, only is about three to eight percent of the total sleep time. It lasts only a few minutes each time. I see. And research has shown that for uh, a lot of people, yes, the quantity of sleep, how much you're sleeping is important. But just as important, or for many people, even more important is the quality of the sleep. So if you're sleeping eight hours a night, but you're staying in those lighter stages of sleep and getting woken up frequently, mm-hmm. you're, you're not getting good restorative healthy sleep. But if you're sleeping less than that, but you're getting into that stage three sleep and you're getting that restorative sleep, you may actually feel much better and more refreshed and be healthier than somebody who's sleeping eight or nine hours wow. because that you're getting sense. into that deeper stages of sleep yeah 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 the cycles is very interesting and and does that also have to do then with people who wake up in the middle of the night and then go are able to go back to sleep for a few hours so they're going to hit all those cycles again as well they absolutely can yeah if they're able to get into a deeper sleep they, they absolutely can yeah but obviously with many of them who I have talked to who say they're so exhausted in the morning, obviously many of them probably stay in that stage one, perhaps stage two, but they never hit that deep sleep when they wake up at 2.30 or 3 in the morning. I think that's a good assumption. I think that you're you're correct in that. Boy, this is uh, what a great explanation. I really appreciate uh, you did it the way you did. Very interesting. And I Oh, thank you. You bet. And now that cool. whole cycling, that is so interesting that you actually go in and out of these stages. It makes sense, but I never thought about it that way. And and if I can add just a couple things to yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. The REM sleep, the dreaming sleep, you know, typically occurs throughout the night in intervals approximately every 90 minutes in all mm. age groups, across the age groups. So that tends to be well-preserved as we age. Huh. In Stage four sleep progressively decreases as we age. So in the elderly, in fact, there's little presence in the elderly, that stage four sleep. And the elder, elderly people, elderly patients, elderly folks, they have frequent, more frequent awakenings and a notable increase in how long they're awake after they start sleeping. So there's a couple factors to think of. You know, are you waking up and can you go back to sleep? Yeah. And... 
how frequently is that happening? Okay. And then deep or slow wave sleep at stages three and four gradually lessen with age and usually actually disappear in the elderly. So that's why, you know, the elderly can suffer from a lot from sleep deprivation. Their sleep architectures decline. And there are things that we can do to compensate. One of the important things is, is psychologically what happens is people get scared and they anticipate oh. that they're going to be awake. Mm-hmm. They're in this state, they're in this, in this cycle themselves of because they've been waking up, because they haven't been sleeping, because they've been feeling exhausted. When they start going to sleep, actually going to bed can create some anxiety itself because they're anticipating that they're going to get a bad night's sleep. Right. And it really can turn into a self-fulfilling prophecy. I see. And, and, and the research has shown that, that the expectation of sleep has a huge impact on the quality and quantity of sleep, how long and how well people sleep. Mm. So just retraining and rethinking the expectations to think more positively that it's going to be good. Uh, there have been research on uh, meditation and cognitive behavioral therapy that have had the excellent results. And that's all about changing the mindset. Again, helping people calm down. It could be a cortisol response. But, but that expectation of what we're going to experience has real physiological, physical impacts on our experience. So that could be totally leading to an anxiety issue about going to sleep, anxiety disorders. Absolutely. Yeah, huh. absolutely. Wow. And, and in fact, when I look at, you know, both in the research and then clinically, you know, my experiences of what, I, what, what is going on during the whole night's sleep, you know, I take the, the research from the sleep architecture, I take the research from endocrinology and what, what we know, and there's a lot, frankly, we don't know in terms of the different hormones that are in their different concentrations during the night while we're sleeping. And I, and I t- take all that research and I say, okay, what are the factors affecting sleep? And what can we use from a natural products perspective to target all of those? So difficulty falling asleep, difficulty staying asleep. Uh, if it's tight muscles, people are, are tense and tight. Well, what can we do yes. to help those muscles relax? And we know magnesium is a wow. great muscle relax. Anxiety, if somebody's feeling anxious, they're wonderful um, glycine and GABA and herbs like hops and skullcap, everything you know yes. that can help with that anxiety, calm yeah. that down. Yeah. And other things that help people fall asleep and things that help people stay asleep and help regulate blood sugar better because one of the reasons people can be waking up at night is because they may have blood sugar regulation issue and when our blood sugar drops, our body has to regulate blood sugar very tightly in the blood because it's, it's necessary to survive. And when blood sugar drops, we secrete epinephrine and cortisol to increase, to, to release sugar that's stored in the body and exactly. get it into the bloodstream. Exactly. But also those hormones then wake us up. Well, plus, uh, many times what happened is the brain is still processing the stresses from the previous day and getting ready for the next day. It is, happens a lot to people who are just, they're, 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 they're often very creative thinkers. They're often very intuitive people. And they have a lot on the plate, especially on the, in their mind. And they mm-hmm. just cannot turn that brain off because they're always thinking, always active, always trying to process 
stressors, emotions, relationships, work situations. They cannot see to stop the day and move on into sleep and then be ready for the next day. Yeah, and, and part of the challenge is it becomes a, a self-fulfilling prophecy and what I call a feed-forward cycle. So yeah. if they're anxious and they can't sleep and they, they're, they're sleep-deprived, well, that causes more anxiety and makes it even more difficult to sleep, and, and it just keeps feeding on itself. Yeah. Wow, this was such a phenomenal explanation. I really appreciate this. Uh, Dr. John Neustadt, my guest this morning on Gesundheit with Jacobus. The topic is sleep, sleep disorders, obviously, but also with sleep solutions. And so we do hope you stay with us. We are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about other reasons why people cannot fall asleep. Exciting stuff. We have a caller waiting patiently. Uh, good morning, caller. Thanks for joining the program today. What is your name? How can we help you? Hi, Jacobus. This is Mary. Mary, good morning to you. I know that women who have uh, children, yeah. sometimes they can develop pelvic prolapse from you know pushing down during childbirth, okay. and that can push down on the bladder, and you can have constant, ur- ur- you know, constant urination. I had pelvic prolapse surgery done several years ago, so I want to know if he's had experiences with that, because I have to get up every four to five hours at night oh. urinate. I can't sleep at night, okay? Okay, well, thanks, Mary. I appreciate Bye-bye. that. You bet. Bye-bye. Dr. Neustadt, so, did you hear the question? Yeah, uh, after childbirth, it's not uncommon to have more frequent urination during the night called nocturia, getting up at the night in the middle of the night or you know, even when they sneeze or women sneeze or laugh to have uh, a little bit of urine uh, come out. And it's it's an anatomical issue that's happened. There's been, you know, with the the, the baby uh, coming through the birth canal, there's changes in the in the anatomy that can cause that. And as Mary mentioned, there one specific change is called a pelvic prolapse, and surgeons can go in and and, and help with with that. Uh, unfortunately, Mary, I wish I had a uh, solution in terms of you uh, getting up every four hours other than what I'm about to say, which I, which I hope will help you, and that is that where I've had some success is to stop drinking any liquids earlier in, in the night. And that may just take some experimentation with how long, whether it's two hours before you go to bed or four hours before you go to bed, to find out what might work for you but if you are not producing as much urine because you're not drinking as much, and I encourage you during the day to stay well hydrated and make sure you're drinking uh, lots of, of water. Uh, but at night, you, if you haven't tried it, you may want to try reducing the amount of liquid you're taking in before bed, and, and that may help. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Uh, Dr. John Neustadt my guest and we are discussing sleep what a phenomenal explanation you gave us about sleep architecture that was so good i really learned a lot from that um one of the other thing is uh, we need to look at potentially hormones or gender as explanations why people have such a hard time sleeping are you are you uh, agreeing with me on that Absolutely. Uh, it's very important. It all comes down to the question of 
potentially what are the underlying causes of yeah. what's going on. And women um, uh, are more likely, 40% more likely than men to suffer at some point from insomnia. And there could be hormonal regulation issues. It could, if it cycles with their, their menstrual cycles and their periods and the, the hormone fluctuations with that, we know that menopause and the drop in estrogen at menopause uh, can cause insomnia. Uh, hot flashes, actually, uh, during the night can, can wake women up uh, during perimenopause and after. Yes. Uh, there, there's actually some good research on pine bark extract, a clinical trial, oh. uh, using the, the amount, actually, that's in my, my sleep relief product. That's why I put it in there. Yeah. It's a great antioxidant, tons of wonderful health benefits from pine bark extract, but the study actually showed in women who were getting hot flashes at night um, that it helped them sleep better. Their sleep improved when they were, significantly improved when they were, were, were taking it. But, but low estrogen, just like in uh, other low hormones, can cause insomnia. Low testosterone can cause uh, insomnia. Huh. Low progesterone can cause insomnia. Yeah. Um, pregnenolone can cause uh, insomnia. Low, as, low as well. pregnenolone? Low pregnenolone, exactly. So that yeah. is an interesting thing because low pregnenolone, May have happens quite a bit to people who are on statin drugs uh, to lower their cholesterol for the right or the wrong reasons. But they, they, since cholesterol produces hormones, and the first one it makes is pregnenolone, it may therefore happen to people who have who are taking these drugs. Is that uh, is that true or not true? Well, I think if you get too cholesterol too low, it is the precursor hormone that it may it may affect any of the downstream hormones. If you just have less of it around and that's the raw material, yeah. then, then yes. I don't know of any research specifically correlating the two, but I haven't I haven't looked at that. So you, you may be absolutely correct. I haven't searched for that research to see the statin drugs, one of the side effects, and there are many, yeah. uh, is one of the side effects, uh, decrease steroid hormones like pregnenolone. Mm. Now, the, uh, since you are talking about hormones and you mentioned the, uh, I, I'm, I'm thinking all of a sudden about thyroid disorders, which I think you as a naturopath have discovered that the parameters that on medical lab testing is done where the TSH is, is called normal between 0 0.30 and almost about 5.0, that that parameter is way too broad and that many people are actually in a low thyroid state, a hypothyroid state, which could have as a side effect insomnia. And then they're not diagnosed correctly because for the most doctors, they're in the normal range. It's not considered a problem. But if they could just get the thyroid uh, functioning better, their insomnia could actually be improved. Great point with the testosterone and uh, not testosterone, thyroid hormone and laboratory values. And we see that with different lab values as well, that the range that's used oftentimes by labs is not the optimal. So how, how a laboratory creates a reference range is they take 100 people, let's say, uh, or 1,000 people. Yes. And they take the value from those lab results, the values, all of them, uh -huh. and they do some math on it, and they say, okay, 95% of all those results we're going to call normal. Correct. Doesn't mean it's healthy. It just means it's quote-unquote normal. Yes. 
And by definition, 2.5% of those lab values that are in the upper end are going to be considered high. Yes. And 2.5% at the lower end are going to be considered low. Yeah. Years ago, the American Academy of uh, Clinical Endocrinologists came out with a recommendation that the reference range of what's considered high for TSH, so for thyroid, if a TSH value is high, it means the thyroid gland is underactive, that there's not enough thyroid hormone, that 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 be lowered to uh, about 2.5. Really? And some labs, uh, a lot of labs are still using that. Some labs are using uh, higher values, like you said, 3 all the way to 5. Yes. But if somebody is above, you know, 2.5 or higher, uh, you always want to correlate any lab value to symptoms if we can, because it's important to treat the person and not the number on a test, which is another bit of a pet peeve of mine. I've talked a lot about bone density scans and osteoporosis and the testing. You always want to correlate it to the clinical endpoint, the most thing that the thing that's most clinically relevant for the patient. Yes. And so with thyroid, you want to screen and make sure are they having symptoms. And usually what, what I see usually with, with low thyroid is, is excessive sleep. They're tired all the time, not insomnia, okay. but what would be called hypersomnia. You know, they're just, they're tired a lot. Okay. Uh, then when that value gets corrected, uh, their sleep can improve. What we see with insomnia is a, a Graves disease. Uh, type picture or a okay. hyperthyroid, too much thyroid hormone causes uh, can cause racing heart, can cause insomnia, excessive sweating, anxiety, and that can be induced also by medication. If somebody's over-medicated with thyroid, which I've seen unfortunately too often, yeah. they're, they're given too much thyroid hormone, then it can put them into a hyperthyroid situation where they can get insomnia, it also increases their risk for osteoporosis and other problems as well. Okay. Okay, very interesting. So fatigue is more with hypothyroid. Correct. Insomnia you see more with uh, Graves' disease or hyperthyroid. Correct. Okay. Correct. And and any, you know, hormone disruptions, uh, you know, it's a delicate balance between the hormones. You want to have them in a nice healthy you know, physiological range. People who are on testosterone supplementation, the low testosterone can cause insomnia um, and, you know, elevated testosterone can cause people to have insomnia as, as well because uh-huh. they've got too much energy and anxiety and they're, and they're not sleeping. So it, it can be both ways. It's not always that if it's low, it means you're getting, um, uh, you know, too much sleep or you're getting insomnia, you can get, whether it's high or low with some hormones, can have the similar results. Yes. Uh, with thyroid, it's different. But with testosterone, whether it's low or high, it can cause sleep problems. Uh, estrogen, typically, we're looking, if it's just low, then that causes sleep sleep issues. Yes. And one thing to screen for and people to ask themselves that too often overlooked in by clinicians is a history of traumatic brain injury. Oh, wow. So all of those hormones that we mentioned, there's a cascade where the thyroid hormone, for example, is ultimately produced in the thyroid gland in the neck. Estrogen is produced in the ovaries. Uh, Fat cells can produce estrogen. Testosterone is produced in the uh, testicles. But the precursor hormone, what 
starts all of that, initiates that cascade of and those steps of, of reactions to create the hormone and to cause it to be secreted in the body, starts, it all starts in the brain, okay. in the central nervous system okay. in the brain. You mentioned the pineal gland. Well, there's another gland called the pituitary yes. gland in the brain. Yeah, big one. And the anterior pituitary stim- creates all these hormones that stimulate the production and secretion and release of all these other hormones. But from, and that tissue of the brain is very delicate. It's literally fat. The brain is primarily composed of fat. With anybody who has cut through a piece of, 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 of fat can know that it can be quite squishy and soft, yeah. especially if it's warmed up. And our, you know, our body temperature is you know, typically you know, 98.6 degrees. And there's nothing, there's no protection around our brain. Yes. And inside our skull, on the inside of the skull, there are actually some bone. the inside of the bones, there's some points on them. They can be kind of pointy in there. And what happens in, a, in an accident, whether it's falling off a horse or a motor vehicle accident or falling and hitting your head when you're skiing, even if you have a helmet on, uh, playing football, I know the Super Bowl is tomorrow, yeah. you know, those, those concussions that occur, the, the, rep- the repetitive nature of that. But even if it just happens once, you know, boxing, another sport where that happens a lot, soccer, which I know that you, you've played for years, yes. you know, that it can happen a lot there as well. But what happens is your brain gets, gets jostled around in its case, and it can impact that bone and cause damage to the delicate tissue in the brain that produces those hormones. And what happens is later on in life, it could take 10 years after the event for us to actually see the results. It can be sort of a low simmering issue that doesn't, t- doesn't show itself for many years later, but a study out of, uh, you know, 450 patients, one study, 50% reported insomnia symptoms in one study of, of traumatic brain injury. And when so, we run hormone panels on these people who have a history of it, it shows them low in specific hormones. It could be thyroid, it could be estrogen, it could be testosterone, it could yeah, be, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, other hormones that we haven't even talked about or, and, and some pattern of that and when we give them the hormone as a medicine to replenish it to just get it back into the normal range uh they tend to get better and their sleep tends to get better yes we're restoring the normal physiology wow that is really powerful stuff what you tell us there dr newstead i i tell you that I mean, uh, if I understand it correctly, I do know the anterior pituitary is also responsible uh, for the production of cortisol and adrenaline in the adrenals. And so if that is disrupted, then it can really give people this adrenal imbalance in what they do in the production of DHEA and uh, adrenaline and cortisol. Is that, is that, am I on the money on this one? Uh, you are, except it's the posterior pituitary gland that, that has that, but still it's the pituitary. Oh, the, post- the posterior the, does that? The posterior, uh, yeah, it, it works with those neuro, what's called neuroendocrine hormones, uh, corticotropin releasing hormone, oh, for example. I thought that they were um, dealing more with the kidney function, but um, the posterior, so, yeah. And and so, yes, it, and those, those are the hormones, cortisol, for example, that on a wow. panel look, looking at traumatic brain injury, yeah. uh, aldosterone maybe is another one that 
it could be important to test and, and look at. Yeah, because then in my the way you explain it, I, I would say you your brain has been scrambled, so to say, because of years of hitting or explosions or being in the war. And it, it starts making people, it, it affects the adrenals in a way that uh, they become hypervigilant and that they, they, they can have these anxiety disorders that are, and, mm-hmm. and, and the, the, the cravings for sugars and that, that all could be related to, to adrenal issues. Uh, correct. Adrenal issues and war decreases in other, other hormones as well because wow. of that. And it doesn't even have to be a physical hitting of the head and it doesn't have to be multiple times it could be even after one depending on the person and the severity but we see it in veterans unfortunately with closed head wounds the blast trauma yes um people who are uh the ones who go in first and are 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 setting blasts and charges to to blow up doors and enter buildings or are out in the field in combat and and exposed to the impact on their body and their brains of these of the shockwaves from a blast without necessarily even uh, having any open wounds that, yeah. that they experience. Right. Wow. Dr. John Neustadt's website is NBI, Nutritional Biochemistry, Inc., nbihealth.com. His phone number, if you need to get a hold of him afterwards and want to set up an appointment, it's 800 624 uh, boy, what an amazing linking that you do here for us in uh, about the brain and sleeping and the hormones and how all this all this can be connected and and how is it? Young children have a tendency to be very awkward, and of course they're lower to the ground, so you wouldn't expect that they would have brain scrambling going on, but they have a tendency to fall over and to hit their heads and to get all these issues uh, that happens at that young an age. Uh, is there any research done that you are aware of? Or is that a possibility for future issues such as ADD, ADHD, anxiety, insomnia, etc.? That's a fascinating question. I don't know of any research that supports that uh, or contradicts it, frankly. Okay. But there is a, a, an interesting thing with, with children's anatomy that could protect them that we don't have as a, as adults. Okay. So one is there are two things. One, the sutures that is the the in the brain the 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 the, the skull is comprised of different bones. Yeah. And uh, there's and different lobes in, in the brain. So there's the occipital bone on the back. Each side there's the parietal bone. Uh, there's the frontal and the on the front. And these all come together, and they're 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 sort of stitched together, if you will, or they're or they're connected by what are called sutures. And when we're young, those aren't fully formed. You know, when you come out of the birth canal, you know the the, the baby's head is larger than the birth canal, and that's it's squeezed, yeah. and that's why babies can come out with you know, looking like they've got little cone heads. Yes, yes, yes. And you know, over time, that just you know, can cause some concern in new parents of, oh my goodness, what happened? But over time, <laughs> it's natural, and then things settle down, and, it, and then a, uh, the skull uh, will assume it's it's you know healthy anatomical shape. Uh, so the fact that that those sutures are not fully you know solidified yet. When a baby falls, it allows the 
into some potential movement in the skull to absorb some of that impact, not necessarily be transmitted all the way into the brain. And the second is the bones tend to be, you know, are softer in, in babies. And they're, they're not uh, fully calcified, and there's more collagen and connective tissue when we're younger. So that's why a baby and an arm, a long bone, for example, in an arm can get what's called a green, it's called a green stick fracture. It's a specific oh. type of fracture we see in children where, because the bone is, is, is softer. Okay. And so that also may allow for, during a fall, of a child to absorb the impact, disperse it over a wider area, allow the bone to absorb more of it, and not necessarily impact the brain as much. Now, I'm going off of just principles of anatomy and knowledge of anatomy and also my knowledge of osteoporosis, and that's what we see with healthy bone and osteoporosis of why people fall and they don't fracture. Yeah. But um, I think it's applicable here, and I don't know of any research showing that when children fall, fall, they would get, uh, you know, ADHD and those things because every child I know has fallen a lot. You bet. Uh, I got to run. We got to close up here for this okay. hour because we're at the, at the break. So, folks, uh, stay tuned. We will be right back with Dr. Newstead. I tell you, Dr. Newstead, what an absolute joy to have you back on the show and what an enormous, great information. Thank you. Thank you. I hope uh, your listeners are finding it uh, helpful because ultimately that's that's my passion and that's my goal to help as many people as, as possible. And uh, if I may, there's one more point on testosterone you bet. that I'd love to make. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and that is that increases in testosterone uh, are sleep dependent and they're also weight dependent. So this is important for, for men. So mm. increasing testosterone requires that slow wave sleep that I discussed previously yeah. during the segment on sleep architecture, that stage three sleep. Uh-huh. The other thing is that a decreasing weight increases testosterone as well, okay. proportionate to the amount of weight loss. So if a man is, is low in testosterone, there are two really important things without medications that they may be able to do to help them that might be appropriate. Okay. One is if they're not sleeping to improve their sleep, get better sleep, get more slow wave, that deeper sleep, crucial. And the second is if they're overweight to, to lose weight, drop the pounds. The uh, research is very clear about what the impact and the benefits on testosterone are from both of those things. Wow. Okay. Very, very good. In your passion for understanding sleep better, and I know you're a great researcher. That's really what you are. You know, you've written books and articles and stuff. You just enjoy that. You actually decided to come up with a sleep product. And I do want to talk about the medications that are out today because some of them work. They may not work long term. Uh, some people have side effects. We'll get into that. But I would like to let people know that you have put a product together. It's called Sleep Relief. Can you tell us a little bit about it, and then we'll we'll uh, because the ingredients look very very interesting. Absolutely, and this really the product grew out of my own desperation, and and also hearing from uh, so many MBI customers and patients that they couldn't find a product out there that that worked yeah. and worked for them. 
people typically turn to melatonin. It's usually the first thing that people hear of. Well, I'm having a hard time sleeping. Melatonin has been incredibly well marketed and people will take melatonin. The problem with melatonin is it goes away quickly in the body. So the half-life of a substance is how long it takes before half of that substance is eliminated from the body. Melatonin has a very short half-life. It doesn't stick around very long. The half-life for melatonin is about 40, 40 to 50 minutes. So really? Let's, let's, be, let's be generous and say it's an hour. Wow. So somebody takes you know, three milligrams of melatonin to go to sleep. An hour later, they have one and a half milligrams in their body. An hour after that, 0.75 milligrams, and on and on, and then they wake up in the middle of the night. And I so see. their reaction tends to be, well, I'm just going to take more, and people end up taking more and more melatonin yeah. before, yes, it knocks them out for the entire night, and then they woke up. They wake up feeling hungover and groggy the next day. Yeah, why, why is that exactly? What do you say is the reason why people feel groggy after they take melatonin? Well, melatonin is involved It's the circadian modulator, yes. meaning it, it tells our body it's time to go to bed. It helps us feel sleepy. So we naturally secrete melatonin uh, from the brain. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, more melatonin is secreted in the gut than actually in the brain. Oh, really? But when we go to sleep and the sun goes down and we start getting sleepy, that's our melatonin that's starting to increase, and it increase, starts increasing at about 10 o'clock at night, the natural rhythm. It peaks at about 1 in the morning, and then it's you know 1 or 2 in the morning, and then it's gone out of the body at 6 a.m. when we start waking up. Yeah. So the role is to help us feel sleepy, and when people end up taking too much and then it's still in their system when they wake up and too high of an amount, well, they're still sleepy. So they feel hungover. they got the, you got to shake the cobwebs out. Yes. And the challenge that I had with both myself and my own insomnia and searching for a solution and with the existing products on the market is that they weren't really working with the body's natural rhythm. They weren't oh. working with that sleep architecture, the, the stages of sleep, the phases of sleep, and, and what we know and how sleep progresses through the night, what hormones are involved at different stages, um, what physiologically is happening at different stages. And instead, they typically, the other products that were out there were just were immediate release. I mean, they just dump all their nutrients at once, and then they'd, they'd wear off. Hmm. And if somebody woke up in the middle of the night, they'd, they'd just be wide awake again and couldn't fall back asleep instead of maybe if they woke up to go to the bathroom to be able to easily fall back asleep. So that's why I really dove into, uh, took a deep dive into the, into, into the research and ended up creating Sleep Relief, which is uh, unique both in its formulation but also its delivery. It's in a biphasic time-release tablet. Meaning, as I said before in the show, there are two general phases or categories we can think of during the night. One is the falling asleep and the other is staying asleep. Yes. So phase, phase one in sleep relief gets released in about 30 to 45 minutes, okay. the nutrients do, and, and that helps you fall asleep naturally, gently. And it has nutrients in there that target the different issues people have with having a hard time falling asleep. So maybe their melatonin production isn't high enough. 
Maybe they've got low melatonin. Well, it's got just a little bit of melatonin, one milligram per per tablet. For, for two tablets, maybe they have maybe it's one anxiety. milligram per tablet or one milligram per two tablets. One milligram per tablet. Oh, okay. Yeah, and mm-hmm. the recommendation is on the bottle is one to two tablets uh, per Third. night, and that depends that depends on how sensitive somebody is, how much they think they need. Um, you know, it may take some experimenting to to figure out what's the best for each person. Uh, I take two a night. That's what I find is best for me. Other people love one a night. Okay. And then also in phase one for the anxiety component to promote, you know, calming that nervous system down are nutrients like GABA. Yes. And glycine. And calming herbs like hops and skullcap. And then to help with another piece of the puzzle that I discussed earlier, which is muscle tightness. Okay. And that can cause people muscle tightness to be uh, uh, feeling comfortable laying there and have a hard time sleeping, falling asleep and tossing and turning is magnesium. Magnesium okay. is a nice, gentle muscle relaxer. And so that's phase one. And then phase two is, and there's some other nutrients in phase one, but then in phase two, what we have is helping people to stay asleep. And in that are adaptogenic herbs like ashwagandha, magnolia bark, uh, things of that nature to help regulate the stress response during the night. Uh, And then there's a a little bit of, um, you know, there's some other nutrients in there as well. But the two phases are there to more closely match what our own natural rhythms are and also to help deal with and and help correct the different challenges that people have that are causing them to not fall asleep. And for different people, it's unique. So that's why one supplement may work for one person, one supplement may work for somebody else. What I tried to do is look at the whole picture, like I've done during this program, and say, what are the underlying causes? How can we most closely... uh, basically meet people where they are, whether it's from anxiety or muscle tension or uh, blood sugar issues or low melatonin, and provide a solution that, that, that more closely matches the natural sleep cycle, healthy sleep cycle, to help people get better restorative sleep. Now, one thing that I see on the, on the tablet, on the list, is that you have in it, vitamin B6 and magnesium. And I thought it was so interesting. Number one, you got the P5P vitamin B6, so the better absorbable one, the coenzymated form. But my understanding is that B6 and magnesium both are needed to help the L-tryptophan, which you have in here, convert into 5-HTP and then the serotonin and then the melatonin. Uh, was that indeed the thinking behind it? So we do, we do need, we, we make uh, the pineal gland or pineal gland, I don't know how you say it, makes L-tryptophan, but I understand that tryptophan needs magnesium and B6 to start to become converted into the next stage, which is the 5-hydroxytryptophan or 5-HTP. Is that is that correct? So uh, you are correct in that that is exactly uh why magnesium and B6 are in there, in addition to magnesium being in there, as I mentioned, because it helps relax muscles. Right. The beautiful thing about nutrition 
is that one nutrient is, is used for many different things in the body. So yeah. you can get a lot of different benefits from just one nutrient. And magnesium is a great example of that. Over, magnesium, magnesium is used in over 200 different processes in the body. And a lot of people are deficient in magnesium, so would benefit from a supplement of it because over 50% of the U.S. population does not consume from food even the minimum dec- recommended daily amount of magnesium, so they would then need to get it um, either by improving their diet or through a dietary supplement. L-tryptophan is is not produced in the pineal gland. L-tryptophan oh, is it's a, not. No, it's called an essential amino acid, meaning our oh. body essential means it's not produced in our body. We have to get it from outside sources, from food or dietary supplements. Mm. The five HTP that you mentioned is so okay. L-tryptophan get, converts to five HTP which then goes down its pathway to create serotonin Serotonin. and then melatonin. Um, And so the tryptophan is in in the product, in the dose, and that's what I always try and do when I see clinical trials. I I formulate my products based on clinical trials and strive to use the form and the doses of the nutrients and the combination of nutrients used in those clinical trials because that shows what works. So the L-tryptophan, the dose of the L-tryptophan in the product, in sleep relief, is the dose used in the clinical trials. Then providing the added cofactors of magnesium and vitamin B6 works with the body's biochemistry to naturally help people convert that into uh, melatonin to help them help them sleep. And so the body can regulate how much melatonin to produce or not because there are um, what are called negative feedback loops in hormone production, huh. where once you have enough, it can downregulate the production of that hormone. So it, it allows the body, gives the body the raw materials to uh, basically regulate itself better. But it, it pushes the pathway in the direction of naturally producing more melatonin. Wow. Doctor, and serotonin. So hopefully people's yeah. mood improves. I mean, your mood's going to improve anyway if you're sleeping better, but you know, L-tryptophan has also been shown in clinical trials to improve mood. Wow. Dr. John Neustadt, uh, my guest on Gesundheit with Jacobus, talking about sleep, sleep disorders. What an amazing information we get here. His website, nbihealth.com, nbihealth.com. If you have any questions after the program, feel free to call him at 800 624 1416 6241416 I have been taught wrong. I thought that the pineal gland makes L-tryptophan which converts to 5-HTP which makes serotonin which converts to melatonin. So this is completely wrong. There well not completely, only the L-tryptophan part. So the the it's just it's an essential anytime you see essential on an amino acid yeah. or any nutrient, it yeah. means our body can't produce it. Correct. So tryptophan is one of those. Phenylalanine uh, is is one of those. Leucine, isoleucine, valine. Yeah. Uh, there's a list of them. Now, so if the pineal gland makes the 5-HTP, that is then, so what is the role of the tryptophan then? The tryptophan is, is the precursor. That's what gives the raw material to produce the 5-HTP. To the pineal gland to make the 5-HTP? Well, probably throughout the body. Okay. I, don't think it's, I mean, the, 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 the intestines actually 
make more uh, more serotonin and more melatonin than than that's actually produced in the brain. Okay. So there are other tissues in the body besides the brain that can that has the the machinery, the biochemical processes to to manufacture serotonin and melatonin. But the tryptophan itself, the body can't make that raw material has to come from food or dietary supplements, and then the five HTP can be made inside the body. Wow. Well, it makes it makes. I'm looking at the label from your sleep relief uh, blend, uh, the l So you have the vitamin B6 and magnesium, which we just explained, which work also as enzymes and then relaxing the muscles. But indeed, to have the L-tryptophan in there as first ingredient with the glycine, that is part of stage one with the theanine to calm down the mind. Then you have the meson pine. You were talking about the pine bark extract uh, that is in there as an antioxidant. So the pine bark extract is an antioxidant, but what the what the clinical trials have shown with pine bark is that um, it can also help uh, promote uh, sleep. Women specifically who huh. were having uh, hot flashes oh. uh, at night took uh, the same dose of pine bark extract that's in my product, sleep relief, yeah. and they slept better. They they had significantly better sleep, and so that's why basing my my research, my, my products on the different um, clinical trials are out there. That's why that's, that's in the product. And the phase, the pine bark extract is actually in phase two. Uh, oh, it is. Okay. Sleep because, mm-hmm, because the pine bark is not really helping anybody relax or fall asleep. It's okay. helping people who are maybe being woken up by night flashes to uh, sleep better, to not wake up as much. Similarly, the adaptogenic herbs like ashwagandha, yeah. magnolia bark extract, hops, uh, jujube. jujube. Um, well, hops is different. Hops is not, uh, I don't consider hops an adaptogen. So the adaptogenic herbs help reduce the stress response. It helps the body deal with stress better. So if people are experiencing some anxiety while they're sleeping. Yeah. Um, this can help them regulate that better so it's not having as big of an impact and hopefully so they're not uh, waking up as much. And in fact, there is clinical trials on ashwagandha, standardized extract for improving sleep. Um, the hops and the skull cap are uh, herbs that, that help relax okay. the body. Yes. So that's for that's in phase one to help people fall asleep. Also, that's all part of stage one. Okay. Huh. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Uh, very interesting. And then the melatonin, because of the way the body secretes melatonin, is actually split between phase one and phase two. Okay. Hmm. So you put one milligram in phase one and one milligram in phase two, and that's why it's... Uh, a, no, actually, actually no? it's half a, mil, half a milligram in phase one and, and half a milligram in phase two. Okay. Well, that's what I asked you earlier. I said it's one milligram in one tablet, but you meant to say one, one milligram is in one serving. Um, Correct? So... No? Well, and not, no. not that it is super important, but I just uh, I know that no, I no, asked, no, yeah. no, it is important. It, it is actually important. Let me let me let me just make sure that it's very clear. Yeah, um, there is one milligram of melatonin in one tablet. Okay, one, one tablet is composed of. It's a biphasic tablet. There are two phases. Okay, there's phase one, which gets released in the first thirty to forty-five minutes to help people fall asleep. And then there's phase two 
that releases in, in each tablet that releases the nutrients over the next about three to four hours yeah. to help people stay asleep. Yes. And that's all in one tablet. Okay. And in one tablet, there's one milligram of melatonin. Okay. Within that tablet, the melatonin, though, is divided up both in phase one and in phase two. Okay. So there's half a milligram in phase one okay. to help people fall asleep uh-huh. and half a milligram in phase two to help them stay asleep. Right. One serving of the product, the definition of by the US FDA of a serving is the maximum amount that any person can take in at one time. Okay. The recommendation on the bottle for sleep relief is one to two tablets about 30 minutes before bed. So while a lot of people do great, great on one tablet, yeah. A lot of people also do great on two tablets. Wow. The maximum that we recommend to take at any one time is two tablets. Mm-hmm. So the serving size is two tablets. Mm. Okay. That Does makes that make sense. sense? Uh, totally. Totally. Thank you very much for explaining that. Now I also understand because when you look at the label, you see all these great ingredients. And I thought that maybe the phase one were mentioned sooner than later, but then now I understand it. It's just how you put it on the bottle. Uh, but well, and, and by law, also on a proprietary blend, yeah. you have to have the, 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 the nutrient that is in the highest amount comes first okay. in descending order. So as the amount of nutrients in the proprietary blend goes down, it is that's listed in order. So melatonin is has the least. There's the least amount Correct. Of, of, in terms of milligram. And so that's why melatonin is last and L-tryptophan is first because... There's more L-tryptophan. Yeah, those are these are these are uh, uh, these tablets are definitely full because uh, there is at least uh, 1,200 milligram in two tablets. So that is uh, yeah. 600 milligram in a tablet. Excellent. Wow. All right. Well, we only have a half hour left with you. I really hope that people will stay this last half hour with any comments or questions. But I I am just sitting here taking notes while you talk because it is so interesting, and I really appreciate your time this morning. Uh, We're going to take a short break, folks, with Dr. Neustadt. When we come back, we're going to talk about some of the medications out there as well as some natural options. So stay tuned for that. We'll be right back. I absolutely have learned a lot today, uh, much more than I thought I would learn. I thought I had some things figured out really well, Dr. Neustadt, uh, (laughs) but you definitely... You definitely woke me up here, no pun intended. <laughs> At least I didn't put you to sleep. No, 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 no. Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. His website is nbihealth.com, NBI Nutritional Biochemistry, Inc. Telephone number 800-624-1416, 800-624-1416. What an issue. I tell you, I told Dr. Neustadt last week, that I find that sleep disorders are a big issue, as are digestive disorders. In our store, I find out more and more that people come in for these types of uh, products. They say, how can I solve this issue? So I'm very glad we talk about it. Now, many people resort to either prescription sleep medication or over-the-counter sleep medication. Can you give us a little bit of highlight what you like about it or don't like about it, and and how you maybe have to warn people about these. Well, in general, I'm not a I'm not a fan of them. Uh, they tend to improve sleep 
quantity, but not the quality of, of sleep. Okay. And there can be a lot of very dangerous side effects. So the prescription medication, the largest class, the most popular, the most prescribed are called they're the Z drugs. Uh, the benzodiazepines and the non-benzodiazepines, this class of medications. And what, and th- those are the Lunesta, Ambien, th- those medications. And what we've seen is that people who take them, especially in the elderly, because they have a hard time metabolizing or breaking down the, the drug and eliminating it from their body so it can build up, they become, people who take them, it can increase their risk of you know dizziness, falling, huh. uh, lightheadedness. And in fact, uh, a research in uh, the British Medical Journal it came out and said that concluded that the the actual benefit associated with those medications are are marginal at best, and wow. they're outweighed by the risk, huh. particularly in patients who are at risk for falls or or cognitive uh, impairment. Huh. And uh, another study looked at you know, some of those those medications. Uh, they're called hypnotics, those benzodiazepine drugs for sleep, and looked at over ten thousand patients and followed them for over two and a half years. And what they found is that even as with less than 18 doses per year, it increased their risk of death. Really? And uh, when people take it chronically, you know, over 132 doses per year, you know, there were 532% more likely to die than people who were taking those. Wow. Also increased at, at that higher dose, uh, higher number of, of times taking it, it actually increased cancer risk uh, as well. So the, wow. they're, it, they've been associated with about a half a million excess deaths in the U.S. No way. And wow. I just think that uh, the risks, given what we can do to help naturally support somebody's sleep and promote healthy sleep from an integrated perspective, both with diet, lifestyle, dietary supplements, uh, it's a, for me, it's a much better approach than here's your symptom. You can't sleep. Let me just prescribe a medication for it. There are just too many side effects and risks with that, with that approach. Hmm. Oh, and, wow. and there's a new drug, a new class of drugs that came out uh, just in 2015. You may have seen the, the, the wonderful commercials, very upbeat. Uh, okay. The medication is, is called Belsomra. Is, no. uh, is, uh, and if you look at this medication, you listen to the, the commercials or any of the drugs, you, you, you see all this beautiful imagery and this nice, happy music. And then very quickly and more subtly is this long list of side effects. Really? Uh, and uh, so this new category of drug, Belsamra, uh, is a controlled substance. Uh, it depresses, just like the hypnotics, the benzodiazepine, it depresses the central nervous system to help people sleep. It works out different biochemical process than, than the other medications. But the question is, okay, that's great. We've targeted, we've got this new molecule that's in a pill. But the question is always, and this is what I said before, with we were talking about laboratory values, you don't want to treat a number on a test. You, you want to treat the person. And it always comes down to clinically what's going on. So the question with these medications are, well, does it improve the, 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 how long somebody's asleep? 
And does it improve improve the quality of the sleep? Well, with this medication, I already talked a little bit about that with the benzodiazepines, the Ambien, Lunesta, those drugs. Clonazepam is another one of the benzodiazepines that's that's commonly prescribed. That the this category, the Belsomera medication, the orexin receptor antagonist, decreased how long it takes somebody to sleep by about eight to ten minutes. So they'll get maybe ten minutes longer oh, on the front end. Okay. And it increased the sleep duration by seventeen to twenty minutes, let's say twenty minutes. So this medication, with all of its potential side effects, can help people sleep maybe 30 minutes longer. Wow. At best. Oh, at my best. goodness. Uh, and then what we see, you know, some of the antidepressant medications can create insomnia and sometimes can be used for that as well. So they are tricyclic antidepressants um, that have anti, that are similar to antihistamines, that, that, that type of ac- uh, action, and that can cause tiredness, sleepiness in about 54%, 55% of the patients taking them and similar to other antagonists like serotonin or different antagonists that affect that same pathway. Yeah. We're talking about melatonin and serotonin yeah. can also interfere or cause sleep. So if somebody was put on a medication previously and their sleep was fine, let's say it wasn't being prescribed for sleep, and suddenly they're either having a hard time falling asleep or they feel tired a lot, you know, check the medication. It could even be weeks after the medication was prescribed that the, the, the symptoms set in. So beta blockers, for example, mm. that's a class of medication that's used for blood pressure. Yes. I think there are over 20 million people taking beta blockers, oh. very commonly prescribed. And that actually depletes melatonin. Oh, so it can deplete the melatonin, just like I was talking earlier, saying you know, reading screens at bedtime can do. Uh, and so if somebody's on that and they can't get off, maybe the trick is to take a sleep aid with some melatonin, and that might correct it. Yes. Uh, but other medications, like uh, steroid medications, prednisone, uh, it's an anti-inflammatory used in autoimmune conditions a lot. That can actually cause insomnia, so people have a hard time falling asleep. Well, and there are so many people on, who take all these together, right? Yeah, well, Polly, yeah. They take an antidepressant, they take beta blockers, they take steroid medications, they t- and, and, yeah, and a sleep and, medication. And the, re- the real tragedy is, is when somebody's on a medication and it causes their sleep disorder, and then they're prescribed a second medication to correct the symptom that was caused by the first medication. Yes, yes. And that's uh, why I, the average American over 65 is taking eight medication on the average. Amazing, yeah. amazing. Yeah. It's unreal. And, and why is that not the case in other countries? We're, we're unique in this country. Yeah, you're right so It's about not that, that our, our physiology, our biochemistry is unique. It's our diet and our lifestyle and the stress we live under yeah. and how we approach our own health in daily life that sets us up for those chronic illnesses later in life. Yes. Ah, that's a great point. I I saw indeed when I was prepping for the show that the prescription drugs used or even over the counter that when you use them for a while, like three weeks, it already, well, you already mentioned that it doesn't help you much anyway. It's marginal at best, but it gets even worse the longer you take it. Well, it can. I mean, the effectiveness of any medication depending, you know, can wear off after, after time. 
the, the, the conclusion about the over-the-counter medications that people take, like Benadryl and antihistamine that some people take for sleep, is that they, they're really not effective, and they don't help with sleep quality. And so they're not, they're not, first of all, correcting the underlying cause, but they're really not improving somebody's sleep. Okay. And they may actually just be masking some, some issues going on, and they don't correct, again, uh, the underlying issue. And when you don't improve the, sleep, the quality of the sleep, then you're still going to have, uh, you're still going to feel very similarly as you're going through your day. You know, tired, fatigued, there could be irritability, yeah. uh, sugar cravings, difficulty yes. processing information, difficulty operating machinery, you know, all of those things. Yes. And so that's why getting a handle on this and really thinking more holistically and not just what pill can I take is, is really important. And how can I do it? Naturally, if, if a dietary supplement uh, can supplement that and be part of that solution, then, then fantastic. I have also heard that when people eat sugar close before they sleep, it can really disrupt their sleep pattern. It may give them bad dreams. They may have a hyperexcitability while they are asleep. They wake up in the middle of the night because their sugar levels drop because they've been stimulating sugar so much. And therefore, on the other hand, it may be beneficial for people to have some protein before they go to bed, either some collagen or maybe a little bit of meat or eggs or, or, or some chicken, any kind of protein, maybe 15, 15 grams of protein. You can take a little bit of cottage cheese if you like that. Uh, 14 grams of protein and half a cup. So uh, have you done any work with uh, eating some protein before bedtime? I, I love that you mentioned this because it is work that I did with, with my patients. Uh, I still recommend it to people. I've written about it in my books. And what happens during the night, and we discussed this, mentioned it earlier in the show, that one of the reasons why people can wake up in the middle of the night is poor blood sugar regulation. The blood sugar drops, and the cortisol and the epinephrine get released, and it increases the blood sugar in, in the body, but it also wakes us up. One of the best ways to regulate blood sugar is, is protein. And so uh, patients in my clinic, I would talk to them, and when there appeared to be potentially a blood sugar regulation issue as yeah. an underlying cause, yeah. and one of the ways to know that and ask them is, do you get tired in the mid-afternoon? So you eat lunch, you get that post-lunch, after-lunch tiredness, maybe an hour or two after you eat lunch. Right. So that's an indicator that, that somebody may not have the best blood sugar regulation, or their diet is not helping them regulate their blood sugar optimally. And you can ask people, you know, I would go through a 24-hour diet recall. What did people eat in the last 24 hours? And if they're not eating enough fiber, whole plant fiber, and protein, they're probably not regulating their sugar well enough if they're eating more simple carbohydrates, mm. uh, sugars, and that sort of thing. So in those cases, I would say, yeah, uh, just, I would tell them 10 grams, 14, 15 grams, that's great too. Eat 10 grams of protein uh, before bed. Mm, and okay. see what that does. It didn't work all the time. But when I did, and the person came back and they said, Doc, I tried it and, and I'm sleeping great now. Well, that's a home run. That's amazing. Yes. No drugs, no, no, just food. When you can do something with food, it's a home run in my opinion. 
Question, Dr. Neustadt, uh, that may be related. I hear people who say they can't sleep because they have acid reflux or high hiatal hernia or GERD when they go to sleep, and now they have to sit up halfway. Any suggestions for these folks? Yeah, absolutely. And I just wrote a blog on this not too long ago on my website, and it's a great point. I'm glad you brought it up. So acid reflux definitely can cause people to, you know, the burning in the sternum, burning behind the chest and in the throat. Uh, That doesn't have to be the case. Some people don't even know they have acid reflux because they don't have that burning and they expect that. But another symptom of acid reflux is a dry hacking cough. Okay. Uh, Because what happens is the acid from the stomach, little particles of acid can go up the esophagus, you know, up from the stomach into the back of the throat, and then you breathe it down into your lungs. You inhale it into your lungs. Yeah. And that little acid droplets that irritate the lungs, you get a dry hacking cough, which is typically positional, meaning it's there when you're laying down, but when you sit up or people sleep lying uh, at an incline, yeah. that symptom, you know, and the discomfort decreases. So the most common foods that cause acid reflux, there are five, uh, are raw onion, garlic, uh, tomatoes, that includes tomato paste, tomato sauces, uh, chocolate. Uh, caffeine, coffee, and and citrus. They're on those acid-blocking medications. They actually increase the risk for uh, not only infections, but long-term taking them increases the risk for fractures, hip fractures. Totally. Uh, by, up to 40 per, by up to 40%. Yeah, because it blocks the, uh, the breakdown of calcium, and therefore we have malabsorption of calcium and we get osteoporosis and fractures. It's a real challenge. It's it a real is. problem. So. So looking at the underlying causes again, looking nutritionally, and uh, very important. Wow. It's, uh, boy, oh boy, oh boy. Um, well, we, we are covering a lot. I mean, I, this is just very fascinating. And all of a sudden, I did think about people who have to sit up and cannot sleep at night because they have this indigested feeling. Now, part of it, of course, could be that they ha- don't have enough acid. Maybe they ate too close to when they when they go to bed. But Correct. the the uh, the combination of that, and then they say, "Well, I better take a sleeping pill." But as far as quality of sleep is concerned, if you are married and you have to go lay in another bedroom or you lay on the couch or on a recliner, that is uh, that is not easy on the relationship either. No, that's that's correct. I mean, you need um, your sleep. <laughs> that's the most important. But it can be hard yep. on many people to uh, to be separated like that. It, it can be hard for many people. Um, it could be worse to be together, though. Um, depending, yeah, you know, if your sleep is disrupted, then you could be disrupting somebody else's sleep. Yeah, but yeah, there's a real there's real dynamic in terms of sleep and your partner, and there's issues too of you know the temperature in the room and which temperature each person likes and what's optimal for their sleep yeah. so yes i mean that that dynamic is is very important to uh to look at but there's actually research and you mentioned uh, uh you know partner and sleeping in the same bed there's research as uh, sleep as uh, what they call what we call an attachment behavior and the study in midlife women uh looked at on it could be financial stress, from family stress, work stress, whatever it is. This can be a reason why people cannot turn off 
their mind. And and you mentioned earlier white noise would be very helpful. Uh, maybe yeah. use a little bit of uh, lavender oil uh, on the bottom of your feet or maybe on your pillow and a sachet in your pillow. Uh, you can also use a little bit of uh, lavender or chamomile as a homeopathic remedy. Uh, perhaps you can uh, put it on your temples. These are all things that if other things don't work, they could be added, hopefully, with some benefits. And, of course, then we have, I, I'm going to try. Now, I really, really don't have too much of a sleep problem. I fall asleep and I wake up fine. I sleep about six hours, so I'm not hitting the average. But the sleep relief uh, that you have, I recommend people, if you have tried melatonin or just tryptophan or GABA or theanine or anything to fall asleep, come in and get the sleep relief product from Dr. Neustadt. Give it a try. It's 60 tablets, and that gives you a month supply at the least. Two tablets a day maximum, one to two tablets. This may be a great solution for you. So, uh, Dr. Neustadt, I really appreciate your time with us this morning. Thank you so much. My pleasure. It's wonderful being on your radio show again. Well, it's uh, long overdue. Hopefully, we can do that again in the near future sometime. I would, I would love that. I Thank wish you. you all the best, you and your family. It's it's nice to hear you're doing well. And I wish you good luck with your company and everything else you do in life. And uh, talk to you again soon. Thank you. Okay. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Dr. Neustadt, nbihealth.com. Check it out. Talk to you next week.